Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Thursday, July 26, 2010. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Monica Vavalala, MD, lead author of an article published in the May Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled, Change in Blood-Brain Barrier Permeability During Pediatric Diabetic Ketoacidosis Treatment. Dr. Vavalala is an associate professor of anesthesiology, pain medicine, and pediatrics at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Vavalala is also the associate director of the Harborview Injury Prevention and Research Center and is an adjunct associate professor of neurological surgery at the University of Washington. The citation for this article is Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, 2010, Volume 11, Number 3, pages 332 to 338. Thank you for being here, Dr. Vavalala. Good morning. Would you please give us some background to your study, why you did what you did? A group of uh, investigators at uh, Seattle Children's Hospital, a couple of my colleagues and I were sitting together trying to understand why it was so difficult to treat children who were admitted um, to the hospital with um, diabetic ketoacidosis. We were pondering the current clinical paradigms um, and also the best way to try to prevent cerebral edema in these children. Uh, This conversation happened a few years ago, and we decided then to begin to collect some preliminary data uh, from children admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit um, with the diagnosis of uh, DKA. In that study, uh, we collected some information on uh, markers of neuronal injury, such as S100 beta, uh, collected some information on regional cerebral oxygen saturation, as well as um, middle cerebral artery flow velocities using transcranial Doppler ultrasound. To try to understand whether cerebral ischemia uh, rather than cerebral hyperemia may be Uh, the most predominant uh, factor involved in the genesis or, in fact, during some portion of the uh, development of cerebral edema. And what we uh, found during that study was that, in fact, there was never any uh, evidence of cerebral desaturation. The S100 beta levels were low. And, in fact, despite the um, hypocapnia that exists during acute DKA, um, middle cerebral artery flow velocities were normal or high, suggesting that, um, in fact, cerebral ischemia was not what we were observing when they were admitted to the hospital. Based on those findings, we then put together a uh, proposal that was funded by the National Institutes of Child Health and Human Development uh, to examine uh, mechanisms in cerebral edema. And part of that study um, led to our examination of blood-brain barrier permeability uh, in, in this population. So what did you do in this study? 
We um, enrolled uh, children who were admitted to uh, our local pediatric hospital um, with with the diagnosis of DKA. So children had to meet certain criteria, such as having a pH of less than 7.3, a bicarb of less than 15, uh, hyperglycemia defined as glucose greater than 300, and the presence of ketosis. We thought those were pretty standard um, diagnostic criteria for DKA. And we uh, designed the study such that children uh, were enrolled um, via the emergency department, um, and they underwent two serial-paired contrast-enhanced perfusion um, and diffusion magnetic resonance imaging scans. And uh, the idea was to try to understand what happens during illness uh, versus recovery. And so um, the study was designed to, acqu- designed to acquire these data um, with the first time point being uh, 12 to 24 hours after insulin start. And we defined our uh, time zero, that is the start of treatment, by the time that insulin was administered because otherwise it became quite arbitrary. You know, we couldn't really be sure uh, when symptoms began because we would have to rely on um, histories, which may or may not be accurate. And some patients were transferred from outside facilities, and it wasn't always that the admission times were recorded, so but the insulin times were recorded, and so we defined our our our, um, our time zero uh, by that definition. So the first MRI scan was obtained during the first 12 to 24 hours after treatment start, and the second MRI scan was obtained between 36 and 72 hours after treatment start, and we aim to to have at least a 12-hour period between the first and second MRI um, so that there was no overlap between the second scan and the first scan in any of our patients. We thought this would give us an idea of what was really happening um, between a more acute versus a less acute period during the patient's stay. And we, um, these children underwent... um, uh, blood-brain barrier permeability examination uh, via by, by having received uh, gadolinium uh, through an IV, and we our team consisted of um, folks in the Department of Radiology who are experts in looking at blood-brain barrier permeability, and the measure for this was something called a permeability ratio, which is based on a series of complex mathematical equations. Um, and we were then able to compare differences between time one and two uh, in whole brain and regional uh, blood-brain barrier permeability. And we chose to examine a couple of different areas, um, the frontal cortex, the occipital cortex, and then the basal ganglia. And we did this because we wanted to look at areas that were supplied by the anterior cerebral circulation, which would be the frontal cortex, the posterior cerebral circulation, the, being the occipital cortex, and then a deep structure. And that's why we chose the basal ganglia. Um, and that was basically the, the uh, design of the study. And then we looked at 
uh, change in uh, permeability ratio uh, over time as a percentage increase or decrease. Would you tell us about your major findings in this study? Sure. Um, now, we enrolled 13 children who um, under actually underwent uh, blood-brain barrier permeability um, testing. And what we found um, was that um, blood-brain barrier permeability, so the permeability ratio increased from time one to time two um, in the majority of children. So in 10 out of 13 children, uh, permeability increased. Uh, now, not only was this evident for the whole brain, but the same pattern seemed to hold when you examined uh, the different regions. So regional permeability increased as well. The other question we asked was, um, do all regions of the brain have similar increases in permeability? And what we found was that the frontal cortex um, experienced the greatest increase in permeability ratio. So it had the greatest increase, about 148%, compared with the occipital cortex, which was 128%, and then the least permeability increase uh, was noted in the basal ganglia. What causes the increased blood-brain barrier permeability in DKA? This is a very uh, complicated issue, and and we're not really sure uh, what the what the reason is. There are some animal data that suggest that um, that hyperglycemia itself uh, may result in um, in some you know alterations of the tight junctions uh, in the in the blood brain barrier. Uh, there's some data that suggests that insulin administration uh, acting via the sodium uh, channels causes uh, changes in the in the blood-brain barrier. Um, there's a line of thought that suggests that perhaps inflammatory cytokines mediate blood-brain barrier permeability as well. Um, and we did examine um, IL-6 levels in four patients um, to try to examine the association between blood-brain barrier permeability and in our and IL-6 levels, and um, we in, in our four of our four patients, three out of the four experienced increases in in permeability. But the sample size was so small that we couldn't really um, draw any definitive conclusions. And that, and we're we're going to try and look at this um, as we move forward. Uh, but that may play a role in the pathogenesis of increased blood-brain barrier permeability. Is increased blood-brain barrier permeability associated with cerebral edema in DKA? And did you have any children who had clinical evidence of uh, cerebral edema in your in your study population? We had uh, two subjects uh, in our study population who had um, what was what was diagnosed as cerebral edema on CT and by clinical findings. Um, they underwent intracranial pressure monitoring, um, and their ICPs, their opening pressures were normal, but they had received, um, you know, mannitol prior to the placement of the ICP monitor. So that, that became a little bit um, difficult to, to really correlate. Uh, the inflammatory markers in both of those children were high, um, and so I think that, you know, one of the, one of the 
key issues here is actually having the outcome, which is clinically evident cerebral edema, and then making sure that you have these laboratory markers. But clinically evident cerebral edema is, is rare, and it's often difficult to try to collect these data in untreated patients. So I think based on this study, we're not able to really associate um, inflammation with blood-brain barrier permeability with edema in that N of 2. The other confounding issue was that because they had intracranial pressure monitors in place, these two children under, underwent their MRI scans late because we couldn't, you know, image these children with the ICP monitor in place. And so the time points of collection of the inflammatory markers and the MRI findings didn't, didn't correlate very well. Um, so to answer your question more generally in terms of the relationship between the blood-brain barrier permeability and cerebral edema, what, what, we've, what we've read about, you know, and seen is that um, clinical cerebral edema is often diagnosed two to ten hours after start of DKA therapy. And if we assume that that start of DKA therapy means insulin therapy and probably associated hydration, um, we expected to find that blood-brain barrier permeability would be high early on. Um, in other words, at the first time that our, that our um, MRI image was obtained compared to our second time point. But what we found was that permeability increased between the first and second scans. Now, one of, the, one of the limitations here is that we don't have scans done earlier. So if there's a triphasic response, for example, um, we missed that. Um, and so I think that this study really just provides a, you know, food for thought. It's a beginning to further examine all the potential contributors to cerebral edema in, in DKA, which may include um, changes in blood-brain barrier permeability. It must have been quite a challenge to carry out this studying in critically ill children. Would you talk a little bit about the challenges for carrying out clinical research in children with critical illness? Sure. I think this is a really important um, important point. Um, when the when the interdisciplinary team got together, you know, we had to sit and figure out the logistics, um, starting from screening and identification. Um, of, of potentially eligible subjects, but also doing so in a timely manner. So this was a time-sensitive study that we had to, you know, sort of make sure that we had our first scan within a, within a set period of time. So I think that, that posed a, a challenge because um, depending on the institution where you are and, and how you're conducting the study, the, avail the availability of research staff may be limited, and I think we as investigators found that we had to go in and do a lot of the screening and consenting ourselves, which, which turned out to be uh, more of a challenge than we initially anticipated. The second issue um, was that of parental consent. Um, this study fell into the, um, I would say, not minimal risk category because uh, children had to be administered. Uh, gadolinium, which while FDA approved, um, really was not standard of care um, because MRIs are not standard of care and examining perfusion changes are not standard of care in this disease population. 
This may be different, you know, if you look at other patient populations who have more aggressive imaging early during their uh, critical illness. So because of that, uh, our local IRB required two parental consent uh, in person. Um, so if you have a family who has, you know, more than one child and one parent is at home and one parent brings the child into the emergency department or to the intensive care unit, um, you know, we struggled uh, to get both parent, both parent consents in a timely manner in writing. You know, we couldn't ask the second parent to come in. So we had to have some pretty significant, you know, conversations with our IRB in terms of would we accept faxed consents? Could we have two people on the phone? And, you know, so this became a, a major um, navigation process, I would say. Um, we I think what we ended up doing was really trying to use the presence of two parents as a, you know, as a screening process, if you will. So we tried to enroll them, you know, definitely if both parents were there. We had to recruit our, mobilize our research staff to obtain consent during that period before the, before one parent went home. So I think that, you know, um, the two parent consent issue for um, for certain protocols, uh, poses challenges to the research staff and to the conduct of the study. Now, I can certainly understand why systems would want that in place, um, but since we're talking about challenges to, um, to the conduct of the study, I think this was definitely one of them. Um, the other, I would say the other piece is, um, you know, trying to assure safe and responsible conduct of clinical research in, in uh, critically ill children. And by that I mean, you know, we had to really make sure that the monitoring um, plan was in place um, to what, as we're escorting children out of the ICU or uh, to the scanner, the monitoring of children in the uh, MRI scanner. We had to assure the presence of medical personnel who could respond to potential adverse events in the scanner. Now, this was not a problem during the daytime, but evening and nighttime hours, we had to have a person identified who would be present during the, the MRI scanning process and the transport process. And often that, that you know, fell to the responsibility of the investigators. So I think that we worked very hard to sort of once we enrolled a patient, make sure that they completed the study protocol. So we would often escort the patients ourselves, and, you know, sometimes we had to stay with the patient until um, the study was completed. So we've learned a lot, I would say, from the conduct of the study, um, and I think that it's been a good dialogue between the investigators and the, uh, you know, the research uh, staff and the research administration as well. Um, I think everybody recognizes that it's really important to continue to conduct um, research in, in children in, vul in this vulnerable population. We just have to create processes in place that make it both safe and feasible um, for doing so. Where would you like to go next with your studies? We, um, so, so we have um, ongoing uh, projects trying to understand whether the major causative factor in mechanisms of cerebral edema involve um, cerebral ischemia or cerebral hyperemia. Um, in other words, is it a vasogenic process or is it an osmotic process? 
And some of the data collection we have via this proposal already um, are being, some of the data are being analyzed, trying to understand changes in apparent diffusion coefficient, mean transit times. Um, these are, you know, surrogates for looking at, surrogate measures for looking at changes in cerebral blood flow and uh, brain water content. So those, those um, analyses are underway. Um, what would be really nice would be to set up a group of institutions who um, would agree to work together to collect information on on this topic. I think that given the fact that cerebral edema is such a is you know is or clinically evident cerebral edema is rare, um, and that these these studies are challenging for single sites. I think a multi-center observational study. Um, as a first step to understand the natural history of what happens to these children once we, you know, see them, once they enter the healthcare system would be a really good first step to devising any treatment paradigms for preventing uh, this devastating complication. You've certainly made some very thought-provoking points today. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? Well, I think this is a wonderful opportunity, and I'd like to thank you for for it, to talk about this uh, work. Obviously, as investigators, we're very vested, and we think it's very important. It's uh, really nice to see that uh, we have an opportunity to share our findings uh, with the larger community, and um, perhaps this will generate some interest in uh, this line of work. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Vavalala. Thank you very much, Dr. Parker. We have been talking with Dr. Monica Vavalala from the University of Washington in Seattle about the study Change in Blood-Brain Barrier Permeability During Pediatric Diabetic Ketoacidosis Treatment, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in May 2010. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Registration is now open for SCCM's 40th Critical Care Congress, the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Celebrate four decades of society leadership and help chart the course for the future of critical care medicine. This year's Congress will take place January 15th through 19th, 2011 in San Diego, California, USA. Visit www.sccm.org congress for more information or to register. Or you can speak to a customer service representative. Experience all the hands-on workshops, cutting-edge educational sessions, and thought-provoking plenary sessions Congress has to offer. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants, and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for Pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or 
info at sccm.org.